0: We are all people under authority in a variety of different ways. I mean, you may think that you're an independent person, a free spirit, a nonconformist, maybe a rebel, but the fact remains that all of us are still under some kind of authority in life. And and all authority figures that are above us, all authority figures derive their authority from something or someone else. Uh, In other words, something or someone gives them the right to exercise authority over us. If they didn't derive authority from something above them, then they'd have no right to exercise any kind of authority over us. To illustrate this, I'll I'll show you a few pictures of some common authority figures. And see if you can think of where they derive their authority from, okay? And, by the way, there may be more than one answer to some of these, okay? First of all, police officers, okay? Police officers, they're authority figures. But what gives them their authority? Well, police are given authority by what they're supposed to enforce, which is the law, right? Their law enforcement and the law gives me the authority to exercise. Okay, our city was very happy, very thankful for the authority that they exercised this week to keep us safe. Very important in our society. Okay? Second, one of the more familiar authority figures. Okay? Prime Minister, where does Stephen Harper get his authority from? Uh, well on one level his authority also comes from the law, right? but on another more so i think in our form of government what we live under his authority comes from the people okay the majority of people have voted him or his party in this case into office so we the people of canada give him the authority to wield over us right okay third next how about a teacher in school okay where do teachers Get their authority. They have authority over their students. A principal, maybe? Yeah, okay. You could go several different routes here, I think. You could say that they're given authority by the school itself or the principal or other people like that, or they're given authority by the parents who bring their kids to learn under them, or even by the students who voluntarily sit under them sometimes. Or you could even say the government, which oversees the educational system. So many different ways with this one. Okay, the next one may be more difficult. Parents. Okay, a mom or a dad. What gives parents the right to exercise authority over their children? Oh, you're good. Okay. <laughs> if you didn't hear that, I'll get to that in a sec. I mean, you could appeal to long-held cultural beliefs or traditions, but we as Christians would believe that parents are given their authority, that they derive their authority from God, that God has commanded parents to be in authority over their home. And that actually gives some serious weight and responsibility to parents, doesn't it? Right? Okay, one final picture for you today. <laughs> One's a little bit different than the others. Okay, but we can ask the same question of it. What gives Jesus his authority? And don't answer that yet. Okay, Even though I know that many of you probably know the answer. Okay? But I want you to realize that our entire faith hinges and rests upon the authority of Jesus Christ. His teachings wouldn't have any bearing on our lives if he didn't have any legitimate authority over us. If he didn't have legitimate authority, we'd have no reason to follow him. He'd have no right whatsoever to demand our obedience or our love or our worship. None whatsoever. He'd have no claim on our lives. His authority is very important. On the other hand, if he does have authority over us, it changes everything. If he does have authority, it would mean he does have a right to our wholehearted devotion and allegiance. And it means that we sure had better listen and follow and obey and believe in him. So, night and day difference. Does Jesus really have authority over us? And if so, where does he get his authority from? Where does it come from? Now, these questions have actually been being asked for 2,000 years. Even during Jesus' life itself, his own lifetime. If you have a Bible, please turn with me together to Luke 20. Luke 20, where we're going to see one such situation. If you're using a pew Bible, it'll be on page 879. 879 will lead you to Luke 20. I want I ask you to open these Bibles up because I want you to see these truths for yourself. Okay, I don't want to just spell things off. I want you to see these from God's Word. And as we do this, as we open up, I also want to ask you to invite invite you to ask God for His help as well. Okay? And we need His help. We need His Spirit to teach us. So would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need you. We are so thankful that you are sovereign over us that you love us, that you care, even in the midst of our tears, you're planning things for our good, even if the enemy means it for evil. We thank you for that, God. We praise you, and we we say that even though when there's 10,000 blessings in our life, we still need to praise you. We thank you for them. I pray as we come to your word that you would speak to us today. You would teach us your truth. Help us to see the importance of this, and help it to change our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Over the past few weeks, we've witnessed Jesus finally arriving at his long-term destination. Jerusalem. City of peace. The holy city. And the city where Jesus would actually die. In a very short time. He approached the city, just in the page before this, with pomp and cheers and people hailing him as king. But as soon as he entered the city, he started acting as if he owned the place. He went straight to the temple, the heart and the hub of the Jewish nation of Jerusalem. And when he saw the corruption that was there, the chaos that had overrun the temple, he flipped out. We saw this last week. He, he started chasing people and animals out of the temple. Back in 19, verses 45 and 46, it said this, And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He called the temple, My house, and then he cleaned his house. And this was startling. It was a great display of power and anger, righteous anger, and zealousness for holiness. Jesus passionately wanted to restore the purity of worship and prayer in the temple. And then he not only cleaned house, he claimed a pulpit. Verse 47 says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. took it over. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. What a picture. People were enthralled. They were absolutely captivated by Jesus and his teaching. And bigger and bigger crowds were flocking to hear him in the temple. But while some people were enthralled, other people felt, Threatened by him, we saw this in, in the chief priests. And the chief priests obviously worked in the temple. The scribes who studied the law, copied the law, and a number of other religious or political leaders. It just says here that the principal men of the people. Jesus had invaded their turf, stirring the pot. He was threatening really these people's livelihood, and their reputations, their customs, their popularity. Defending their sensibilities. If you put yourself in their shoes, they probably felt judged by him in some way. And these affronted leaders are going to move to center stage in chapter 20. As the opposition and threat to Jesus' life starts to increase and dramatically heat up. This chapter, chapter 20, actually is going to give us five straight controversies between Jesus and the temple leaders, okay? And things are escalating and fast in this week that Jesus would die, okay? Verse 1 describes the setting. It just says this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, okay? So again, he just repeats this one after the other. Like we just saw in chapter 19, Jesus was committed to teaching his followers till the very end, passionately. He's passionate about the power of, of transformative teaching in their lives. But this verse in in chapter 20 gives us a little bit more information than before. He wasn't only teaching general principles. He was actually explicitly preaching the gospel, it says. Or the good news. That's what gospel means. But what good news? The good news about himself. That's the gospel, after all. The good news of Jesus Christ. What that means for us, that's the gospel. Now, the work of the gospel had not yet been completed. Okay? That was going to happen later in the week. Jesus still had to die on a cross. He still had to rise again. But that didn't mean Jesus couldn't preach the gospel before that. Okay, After all, we see this, he never shied away from telling people what was coming, that he was going to die, that he was going to rise again. And he kept telling people that he had come to save them. Come to save them from their sins. To to seek and save the lost. And And he kept telling people that they weren't right with God. But that they could be right with God through him. That they needed to repent of their sins. They needed to believe in him. And that the Messiah and the Savior and the King had come. This was the gospel. This was good news for them. And this is what Jesus had come to bring. This is what he preached passionately and this is the same gospel the only gospel that has the power to change your life today. all of mankind including you including me are destined to die in our sins are subject to judgment but in his love God provided a way of escape for us it's a way to salvation sending Jesus to die, in our place, to, to purchase our new life, eternal life, to win that. And if you haven't done so, I would say the same thing that I'm sure Jesus was saying on this day, that you must repent of your sins, and you must believe in Jesus today. This is the clear and amazing good news of Jesus. And we are so privileged to preach. But you may be confused by this. You may doubt that this is true. You may be unconvinced of its importance or necessity or its urgency. You may even be offended by the notion of Jesus staking a claim on your life. And I I can't blame you if you feel this way. It can be a, a hard truth to swallow or accept, and it's not always so clear. Sometimes things are quite confusing, and you may feel that following Jesus is simply too demanding for you. You can't do it. I believe we see this attitude, this feeling, in this text, as we're going to read it. This fact is going to come out pretty clearly in the passage. It's not a very positive truth, but it is true that Jesus' authority... ...can be confounding to us. Okay? Jesus' authority... The, ...the authority that he has... ...can be confusing... ...or confounding to us. And we're going to... ...we see this very clearly... ...in the leader's response... ...to Jesus' actions... ...to his authoritative actions. Look again with me in verse 1. It says, One day... ...as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple... ...and preaching the gospel the chief priests and the scribes with the elders of the same group as before, they came up and they said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. And so what, what things are they talking about Jesus doing here? What authority do you do these things? It's probably the two things in particular that we've seen, right? First of all, his little temple cleansing stunt, obviously. Be upset by that. And then his powerful teaching. He just took a spot in the temple and began to teach people with authority, powerfully. So how can you, what are you allowed to do, or how are you allowed to do this? And the leaders, we see, just didn't accept him. They didn't believe in him. They are confused by it all. And that, they were offended, so that led to a totally misguided response, reaction. And like the previous passage, it says they sought to destroy him. Here we see them plotting and scheming. And they, they hatched quite the clever plot, actually. Verse 2, they they came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who it is that gave you this authority? So their big question was all about Jesus' authority. Peter twice asked it two different ways. By what authority and who gave it to you? The message paraphrases it this way. It says, the high priests, religion scholars, and leaders confronted him and demanded, show us your credentials. Who authorized you to speak and act like this? One time, several years ago, early on in our relationship, my wife and I were out for a drive, and we decided to park in in a parking lot of a local community center, where we were just sitting in the car having a conversation when all of a sudden another car came driving really fast into the parking lot parks right by us and uh, all they just stopped and then a couple people got out of the car walked over to our car and rapped on the window and so rolled down the window cautiously and they said, hi, we're with the Ottawa police <laughs> kind of scary, right? <laughs> we're with the Ottawa police and we've received reports about rumored drug activity in this area. So we're just going around, we're checking in on any cars parked around here. So could we please have your driver's licenses to run through our system? Okay, so we got our driver's license out, handed them over, and they went back to their car. But as we sat there, we realized that this was an unmarked police car, and it was plainclothes officers, and we had never asked them for any kind of ID at all. So, how did we know they were actually cops? We didn't. For all we knew, they could have been trying to steal our identities at that moment. And yeah, that's, it was, we just didn't know. So, I did what you should never do when you're waiting for a police officer <laughs> I got out of my car. <laughs> still can't believe I did that. But anyway, I, I raised my hands really high so they knew I wasn't up to anything suspicious and I approached their vehicle very slowly. They are probably fingering their weapons, right? You know with how scary I look. And they rolled down their window and I said, I know I should have asked this earlier, but could I see a badge or some ID please? And they humored me. They gave me a little smirk. I <laughs> Um, they showed me a badge, I was satisfied, I went back to my car. But uh, maybe I've seen too many movies, I don't know. <laughs> but do you get what I was asking? Right? I was asking to verify their authority. Okay? To, to verify their authority to take our IDs. To just come up with us and, to us and demand things from us. And the religious leader's question was a little bit similar. They asked Jesus... To verify his authority. They're like, what gives you the right to wreak havoc in the temple and to teach these things? What gives you the right? But like I said, this was a pretty clever question. It was meant to be a trap. They weren't actually curious. They were conniving. Think of the ways that Jesus could have answered this question. Really, there were only two options. Jesus could have said, like, by what authority do you do these things? He could have said that he was doing all these things on his own authority. right? And if he said this, they felt that they could arrest him for taking authority that they thought wasn't his. No ordinary man could just waltz in the temple and do things that Jesus just did. Okay? The other option for him was to say that he was doing all these things on God's authority. And if he dared to say that, and they thought they could stone him for blasphemy. The truest answer for Jesus would have been all of the above, right? He was doing these things both on God's authority and his own. They were one and the same. But no matter how Jesus would have answered leaders would have gotten an answer they wanted no matter what and they were in a win-win situation and he was in a lose-lose situation the catch-22 like i hinted at earlier jesus authority is a much bigger issue than we may imagine it to be it's way more important than we imagine most people who refuse to follow Jesus, who refuse to believe in Jesus, actually have an issue with his authority. Whether or not they would phrase it like that or not, they have an issue with his authority. Many people don't see if or how Jesus ha- can make any rightful demands on their lives. It just doesn't make sense to them. They want to be their own person. They their, People are independent, and so they don't want to surrender over to God. If they say they don't believe in Jesus, obviously they doubt his authority. These come out in all kinds of objections, which many of us have heard. What right do you have to tell me how to live? What right do you have to do that? How dare you impose your faith on me? All roads lead to God. Jesus doesn't have any exclusive claims. Okay? Or they just hate proselytizing because they don't want to hear of anything above them, anything outside of themselves, like a God that is above them or over them. And all these objections reveal people who don't want to live under God's authority. They won't believe, they won't repent, and their sinful independence is the root cause. So whether or not... Jesus has authority is actually a huge issue in today's world. And his authority can be confusing to us or confounding. But ultimately, we must move past the confusion and we must make a decision. We must decide where we stand. Will we surrender to Jesus or not? And as the leaders approached him on this day, Jesus saw right through their trap. And in his wisdom, he instantly came up with a response, a very shrewd response. In verse 3, it says this. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me. Uh, okay, so basically, let's make a deal. Okay? You answer my question, I'll answer yours what he was saying. And even this question you know, was asked with authority. He demanded an answer. Now tell me. And they didn't burst out, hey, wait, wait, wait. We asked first. <laughs> they didn't object. This was authoritative that Jesus demanded this from them. So the leaders must have still felt fairly confident in their trap and thinking, okay, fine. We'll humor you and then he'll have to answer our question. And, and by the way, Jesus wasn't dodging the question. He was raising the stakes. He was like, you want to talk about authority? Okay. Let's talk about authority. And the second clear point we see from this story is this. Jesus' authority asks for an answer from us. Ask may be putting it too mildly. His authority demands a response from us one way or the other. Jesus' authority asks for an answer from us. Here's Jesus' question to the leaders. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now just to review, if you've been with us through Luke, you know who John is. This is speaking of John the Baptist. John was Jesus' cousin and, and forerunner. Who He acted pretty much like a prophet for Jesus' ministry. And back even before John was born, an angel told his parents this in Luke 1. He said, John will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, speaking of the Christ, the Messiah, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this was his mission. It was a beautiful mission. And John, when we see his life, he was a wild man, a bold man, lived in the desert, preaching all the time, baptizing people. And Jesus here refers to John's baptism really as a catch-all for John's ministry as a whole. And then when Jesus comes along, John points to Jesus and says, This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. I'm not worthy to be his servant, to tie his sandals. He is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. That was John's mission. And anyone with eyes to see or ears to hear could easily tell that John was a prophet, sent by God. But like his younger cousin, John also got on the leader's bad side. And a little while before this took place, John had been beheaded by Herod. So, why does Jesus bring up John the Baptist here? In Jerusalem. Why do you ask a question about him? This is actually an absolutely brilliant response from Jesus. It's brilliant. He completely turns the tables on the leaders. One scholar says, with great skill, that Jesus avoided a trap and created one at the same time. And see, the possible answers to the leader's question and Jesus' questions were actually very much the same. Jesus could respond, we said this, with either, my authority comes from myself as a man, or it comes from God. The leaders could respond, John's authority came from himself as a man, or it came from God. But how they answered would reveal what they thought about Christ as well. Because John and Jesus' ministries were both linked and interrelated. The message catches this distinction. Jesus, It says, Jesus answered, First, let me ask you a question. About the baptism of John. Who authorized it? Heaven or humans? Who authorized John's ministry? And that is the question of this entire passage, boiled down, except in terms of Jesus' ministry. Where did... Jesus' authority come from? Heaven or humans? Was it human or heavenly? That's the question. Now, whichever way the leaders answered, it would end badly for them. It it instantly became a lose-lose situation for them. You can see this in their subsequent discussion So verse 4, Jesus asked, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet let see what's going on here. Daryl Box says, They have tried to trap Jesus, but the trap snaps shut in their direction. The fox became the hound. And the hounds became the foxes. Complete reversal. Uh, on the TV game show Family Feud, there's a type of question that's asked where as a, a group of family members, you can huddle up together and discuss your answer. So the question is asked, and then everyone gets together in a circle, puts their arms around each other, and quickly makes a decision together. And then the group turns around, looks at the game shows, and gives their answer. I imagine this scene playing out kind of like that, except in a very serious manner. Jesus asks the question, and leaders go like, "Uh, Give us a minute. (laughs) Back up, turn around, huddle up. How do we answer this one? What do we say to this? This is a tricky question. I imagine they must have been shaking their heads. I mean, their their plan had completely backfired in an instant. Guess what? One day, all refutations of Jesus' authority will backfire. Because he is in control. And he does have authority. And he is all powerful, and he will return to earth to reign with authority. The whole earth's going to be in this situation. Now, we don't know if Jesus wanted their honest opinion or the correct answer. Regardless, they gave him neither. We're going to see. But the leader's discussion and response really should be very revealing to us. Because what applied to John's ministry exactly paralleled Jesus' ministry. If John's ministry was merely human, then Jesus' ministry must also have been human. And if John's ministry was heavenly, then Jesus' ministry must also have been heavenly. And ultimately, we will all have to answer this question. Was Jesus from men, or was he from God? And whichever way we decide impacts the trajectory of our entire lives. Here's the first conclusion we can come to. Jesus' authority asks for an answer from us. And if it's human, we can rightfully resist him. If Jesus' ministry and authority are human, then it is absolutely not wrong for us to resist him. I'll just say this, you better make sure you're right. In the middle of the leader's discussion in verse 6, they say this, But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John... Was a prophet. Do you get what's going on here? Tons of people, especially in the crowds around Jesus, thought that John had been a prophet. And true prophets were sanctioned and sent by God to man. That's where they got their authority. And even though John was now dead, he was still beloved by many people. Held in high esteem. So to tell this crowd of devoted followers that one of their heroes was just an ordinary guy, would have been a really dangerous thing to say. They been, they could have incited a riot. I mean, just imagine if today I got up and said after the events of this week that maybe the Kevin Vickers, the sergeant at arms who saved the day, it seems, or Nathan Srow, the, the soldier that was at the war memorial. If I got up and said, they're just ordinary guys, they're not heroes at all. People would hate me. Right? They're heroes. They deserve to be esteemed. This would have been dangerous for them to say that John was just an ordinary guy. Note, though, that this is what the religious leaders actually believed. This, they thought that his ministry was human. This would have been the honest answer from them. John's baptism came from men. Honest answer. But they felt, and perhaps correctly, that they just couldn't admit this belief publicly. Now, interestingly, this is because it was traditionally held that if you regarded a true fo- prophet as a false one... In other words, denigrating a messenger sent from God. If you thought a true prophet was a false prophet, the punishment was to be stoned. And sure enough, this is what the leaders were afraid of here. They say, if we cease for man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Essentially, their fear of the crowd's reaction prevented them from telling the truth. They were more afraid of the people around than of Jesus. Big mistake. But they thought that their alternative would have been just as big of a mistake. If they couldn't say that it was human ministry, then that would imply that it was a heavenly ministry. And they definitely couldn't have that. Even if that was the popular opinion, it definitely wasn't theirs. And if they were to admit that John's and Jesus' ministry had heavenly authority, it would mean that they had been wrong all along. And they couldn't admit that. Couldn't have that. They couldn't admit failure now. Their pride wouldn't let them. They knew that to acknowledge Jesus' authority meant surrender. And they were right. This is the final point we see here. In direct contrast with the last one. Jesus' authority asks for an answer from us. And if it is heavenly, we must believe in him. And surrender to him. If Jesus' authority is really from God, we must believe in him and surrender to him. You can see this in the first part of their discussion, verse 5. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? They were right. If John was from God, they had to believe him. To do otherwise would be to disbelieve and oppose God himself. So, if they admitted that John was from God, Jesus could turn to them and demand, Then why in the world didn't you believe what he preached? And then he could move on from that and say, And why aren't you believing me? After all, you know what John preached. John preached about me. He testified about me. He pointed to me. So why aren't you believing me? The leader's hypocrisy comes out loud and clear in their huddle, their discussion. They weren't interested in giving their honest opinion. They weren't interested in giving the truth. They were only interested in covering their collective rear ends protecting their reputations. They couldn't believe. No, they wouldn't believe. They couldn't admit defeat. They couldn't surrender. Many of us may be in very similar shoes to them today. Maybe we've run away from God. Maybe we've refused to believe in Jesus. Maybe we do believe, maybe we have believed, but we refuse to surrender some part of our life over to Him. I'll worship Him, but I can't give Him my money, my reputation, my time, whatever the case may be. Maybe we've closed our eyes and our ears to the truth so we hardly recognize it anymore. Maybe we've turned our backs on God and we're so resistant to admit that we've been wrong. We aren't willing to sacrifice any of our pride. We aren't willing to admit that God's been right all along. And we aren't willing to give up our false sense of independence to surrender. plead with you today Jesus does have full authority he is the sovereign creator he has full authority over our universe over our world and over our lives and his full authority demands full surrender from us doesn't mean that his authority is cold or unfeeling or a dictator not at all no though he has authority we see him in scripture lovingly giving it all up in order to die for us he is a merciful and loving ruler he's a humble king and we should gladly humble ourselves before him Wherever we are, wherever we've been, we must surrender all to Him today. Give up our running away. Give up our refusal to believe.
1: Open our eyes, open our ears.
0: Surrender every last corner of our lives to Him. Everything we love, everything we possess, turn back to Him. Admit we're wrong. Sacrifice our pride. Give up our independence. And if you aren't in this situation yourself, I guarantee you, you know many people that are. We must plead with our friends and our family to surrender to Jesus as Lord. He is Lord already, and the question is whether or not we will believe it or live like it. His authority should be. Absolutely inform everything we do. Especially our evangelism, our discipleship. Why else do you think Jesus would begin the Great Commission by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. And make disciples of all nations. Getting back to our story here in Luke 20. The leaders were caught on the horns of an impossible dilemma. What could they do? They felt they couldn't say John's ministry was human or heavenly, so they gave a cop-out answer. Verse 5, again their discussion, says, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced John was a prophet. Verse 7, So they answered that they did not know where it came from. We don't know! Such a bureaucratic no comment. Lame response. Uh, now, I don't want to insult politicians, but th- doesn't this sound like a weaselly politician's answer? Trying to get out of something? They knew the truth. And the truth of the matter is, a non-answer is an answer. They gave an answer here by saying, we don't know. We don't know might as well have been, we won't answer. We won't tell you. So with them not carrying out their end of the bargain, Jesus felt he didn't need to answer them either.
1: So they answered that they did not know where it came
0: from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I mean, Jesus wouldn't have been under any real obligation to tell them anyway. But now that they had reneged on their deal, he definitely had no obligation. I mean, he still could have told them if he wanted to. But it wasn't quite time to fall into their traps. Almost. Not yet. Besides, if you think about it, him telling them the whole story wouldn't have done any good anyway. He would... Prove his authority to everyone soon enough through his resurrection. Not a shadow of a doubt. But many of these same leaders would still refuse to believe. And that often proves true, I think. Many people will not even be convinced by proof. Because the truth is they don't want to be convinced. The leaders claimed to be indecisive here. But they had already made their decision. And they ended up being a key party to Jesus' crucifixion only days later. Last week we saw that ultimately people either choose to kill Jesus or crown him. It's the same thing here. The leaders are foiled for now. But that didn't stop their plotting and their scheming. And we must also decide. Is Jesus merely human history, or is he the Lord of history? Does he have authority over me? Is he the boss of me, or am I the boss of me? Does he have a right to my surrender, to my obedience, to my love and worship? In Jesus' day, we see that the popular opinion was that Jesus was from heaven. This is what most of the crowd thought, that he was from God. And that in the minority belief was that he was a mere mortal. The situation is somewhat reversed in our day. Right? It is popular to like Jesus. But it is radically unpopular to say that he is actually from heaven. If his authority is human we can rightfully resist Him. And if His authority is heavenly, we must believe and surrender to Him. The situation has changed. The possible responses haven't. We cannot waffle in indecision forever. We must give Him an answer. And remember that a non-answer is still an answer. So look to the Scriptures. Look to the evidence of history. Look to his astounding miracles. Look to his amazing teachings. Look to his sacrificial, loving death. Look to his heroic resurrection. And then ask the life-altering question, is Jesus only human or is he from heaven? Your entire future hangs on how you answer this question. Either he isn't even worthy of a second glance. Or he's worthy of our all. Let's pray. God, I pray today that you would move in our hearts. Help us see the truth. Help us surrender. Everything we are, everything we have, everything we love, may we place it on the altar, God. May we make you Lord of our lives. God, you're so amazing, you're so undeserving, and yet you love us. Thank you that you are in control once again. Please change our hearts, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.